0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today?
1: Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 143. Last week we continued to try to weave together the four gospel accounts concerning the resurrection of Jesus and we saw accounts in John uh, at the beginning where Mary was weeping outside of the tomb and peered her head in and there were two angels that appeared that were next to the burial cloths that had been left and being asked why she was crying and still thinking that someone had taken jesus's body and then she turns around and there's jesus standing there and she's just falling to her knees wanting to cling to him with this amazing probably incomprehensible concept of someone once again being alive from the dead and jesus like please don't cling to me like i have not ascended yet but go and tell my brothers, you know, and tell them to meet me in Galilee. And we go from there to the Gospel of Luke where uh, there are two disciples that are unnamed that are, they are going to a village named Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem, and they're talking about all these event, events that had been, that had happened from before the crucifixion to at that moment, the text says, that very day. Yeah. And Jesus appears again, but this time it says that their their eyes were kept from recognizing him and there there begins this it seems like there's some rabbinic motivations going on once again with Jesus asking him like what is co- what's this conversation that you're having what's it about and they're like are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard all the stuff that's happened concerning Jesus of Nazareth and <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: and they basically relay the story and then Jesus kind of rebukes them in some ways like didn't like can't you see that the prophets spoke that the Messiah must suffer in order to enter into glory and we left off last week with Jesus beginning in the in the Torah with Moses and all the prophets he was interpreting to them all the scriptures concerning himself and his authority
0: yeah they uh it was kind of funny we were even well, one of them did get named. We knew he was Cleopas. Oh, that's right. And uh, we had, well, it, no, no reason to go back over that. We did that last episode. That's great. And this is leading us to where we are because we left them. These guys were still traveling to Emmaus and we just left them on the road, Samuel. Mm-hmm. So let's get back. We are in Luke chapter 24, verses 28 to 31. Let's see what this says. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. (laughs) And for my next magical trick. (laughs) Yeah, nothing up my sleeve. All right. So, So we got these three travelers. They finally get to Emmaus. And for some reason, it's the stranger that we know is Jesus. He acts like he wants to just keep traveling on. Now Samuel, I gotta ask you: Does that remind you of anything that we've seen previously? Um,
1: I it's a toughie. Yeah, I'm not. It's not. No, no light
0: bulbs are being lit right all now. All right, all right. So all I don't know if all apostles were on the boat Sea of Galilee, and he comes walking on the water. Read it for us, Samuel. It's in Mark chapter six, verse forty-eight. Just the the last part there.
1: And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Yeah.
0: And remember when we read that, we were like, why? Where was he going? I mean, was he just like, hey, I'm not going to stop unless they say something or, you know what I mean? (laughs) It was very weird. And so here he is. He's kind of like, no, you know, acting like he's going to keep traveling on. So. I don't know. It's it's like Jesus, at least in some sense, he seems to be willing to just go on about his business without them. And we might turn that around and say, us in our everyday lives, all humans of all time, you know what? Maybe he's willing to go on his business without you. Now, in this instance, did he really have somewhere else to go? I don't know. Was he just testing their hospitality? I don't know, maybe. It's kind of like back on that boat. It's just, it's very, very strange. And if nothing else, I mean, again, try to relate it to us and you know humanity's connection with Jesus, God, whatever. It kind of seems to paint some imagery of a God that is fully available and willing to visit and stay with someone, but that someone must make the effort. To invite him in, so I don't know. Maybe I'm seeing stuff that isn't there, or maybe that's exactly what's going. On. I don't. Know. But you know what? That's kind of cool, kind of interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, now, now Luke tells us that they urged him strongly. We would probably use the language he persuaded them, or I'm sorry, they persuaded him. And I don't know. They probably were using some sort of practical reasons. Hey, it's getting late. Uh, you may not have a enough time to get to, you know, like the next destination. I mean, what if it gets dark? It's kind of dangerous out there alone, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure those are all true and convincing and all that. But I think truthfully in the back of their brains, they just wanted to hear more. I mean, I think that their hospitality was sincere, but the last hour or two or three, whatever it's been with this guy had been awesome. And they didn't want it to stop. And apparently, they were persuasive enough that this stranger that we know is Jesus agrees to stay with them. So when they get around to eating, and I don't know if this took long or if it was, you know, quick and easy. I, I don't know. But Jesus, he he's the one who says the blessing. Now, maybe he just kind of took on the role or maybe they you know, like gave the honor to him, like as if he was their guest or something. I don't know. But Jesus says the blessing and then he breaks the bread and gives it to them. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say it, Samuel. But can you can you imagine how he probably had a way about him, a way that he did this that was very peculiarly, Jesus when he had done this over the last few years and 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 in that you can imagine how if he did that in the exact same way right here in this moment well it could have been that in doing it in this unique recognizable way it could have been that very thing that allowed them to actually recognize him whereas all the way up to this point they had not now now the text only tells us that their eyes were opened. So, I mean, it could have just been some supernatural thing. You know, the, the the same thing as the concealing, now the revealing. It's all just supernatural. I don't know. But as we'll soon see, the entirety of the text is going to suggest that, I don't know, maybe it really was his mannerisms or something like that that opened their eyes. And if that's the case, again, I don't know why I keep wanting to draw these parallels to us, but it kind of seems like hey doesn't that hint that at least in some way in some manner we all should be able to discern godlike behavior in this world when we see it there's something recognizable about god being in a thing there's something about his mannerisms or his way or you know something like that so i don't know i think that's a cool thing to see in there and then Kind of the last bit of the story. This is strange and probably disappointing for them. But as soon as they recognize him, he disappears. He's just gone. BEEP BEEP ZIP DANG. That was definitely supernatural. I mean, we're we've kind of been guessing at things before, but the way this appears, I, I mean, he vanished from their sight. It's got to be that was a supernatural thing, right? So this particular story it's very much like other stories in other Jewish writings. And and they had probably heard stories like this and they were now sort of living it out. So I don't know. I just think this whole little bit, this, this little section right here is just kind of weird and kind of amazing all at once. But anyway, nothing super, super exciting in there, Samuel. What do you got?
1: Yeah, I just want to reiterate the, good nugget that you brought to the surface in terms of God has his own agenda in terms of like the purposes that he is convicted of in terms of wanting to put the world back together and it's an open in that those desires of his and his, his goals in our reality are an open invitation for all humanity to join with him and participating in that. Yeah. But if we, you know, you, whoever is listening, if you're not for that, like, I, I don't know, in some ways God's not going to cease his plans and wait around for you. Like, in some ways, it's going. he's going to be kind of like the way that he treated Pharaoh. He's going to give you over to what your heart is actually wanting for your life. Yeah. And your reality, so yeah, I'm just glad that you brought that up. That like it, it's cool to think about, like what would have happened if these two individuals hadn't of beckoned Jesus to come stay with them, and they would have missed this. And you know it, the the gift of the revelation could have been given to someone else. So right, um, that's just yeah, I, I really like that little teaching moment there.
0: Yeah, well. At least they would have walked away with a complete understanding of Messiah and the Torah and <laughs> the Old Testament. They got that going for them. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting to just, you know, step back and think, you know, wh- wh- what is this showing us? How would this look like for us instead of them? Or, you know, whatever. How's that story stood up across time stuff? I don't know. Anyway, if that's all, let's go on. Uh, sure. Luke chapter 24 going to look at verses 32 to 35. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. All right. So now Cleopas and the other disciple that we never learn the name of, they suddenly realize that oh man, we should have we should have recognized him sooner. I mean, who else talks like that? Who else knows what that guy knew? I mean, if we're being honest, weren't our very hearts telling us it was him? But Samuel, is there any point in beating yourself up over anything after the fact? It's not gonna change what happened. Doesn't change a thing, it doesn't help. But they did realize or you know, decide, whatever you wanna call it, they needed to tell the others especially the 11 and so they left that very same hour for jerusalem so now do you remember they talked to jesus they talked him into not traveling because you know it was getting late and now here they are they're going to travel all the way back to jerusalem and I, we don't we don't really know what time of day it is we know it's it's certainly heading toward dark but we don't know how much of the days left so they may have been making that uh doing the travel in in some darkness maybe it was all dark whatever at this point we don't know it it wasn't going to be safe especially if it got dark but they didn't care they had to tell this news so when they finally get to jerusalem they find the eleven and some others all gathered together and just as a side note samuel we're going to find out not long from now that thomas one of the one of the apostles thomas was not there at this time so it's not really 11 but we get the idea we know it's happening so before these two even get to tell their story they find this group already talking about jesus having appeared to simon peter now sadly We don't actually have any text relating to that encounter. We we don't know when or where that happened. But when they have the chance, they tell them about this revelation of the scriptures that they experienced on the road with this stranger who turned out to be Jesus. And they tell of how they finally recognized him and it was, you know, in the breaking of bread or at when he broke bread for them or, or whatever. Now, I've kind of been hinting at, leaning toward, or presenting this as the, the two of these guys recognize Jesus through his actions, his mannerisms, maybe a phrase he used, something like that. And and, you know, taking the text at face value, taking the text more literally, which I, I don't know. To me, that just makes sense. However, there are those who, eh, let's say they would disagree what they see, what they find important. They see this whole little story here as speaking of communion, the uh, Lord's Supper, etc., that kind of stuff. And, and, and the reason is it, it, for them, they look at it and they go, oh, but see, they saw it this way. It's so that all of us may know him through communion now i don't disagree with the idea generally i think it's kind of a beautiful image all of that i just don't see that here i I think that there's uh it's a little bit anachronistic and I, i think it's somewhat inventive uh in this case for me i think these guys are simply relating the details of the story It was their experience. It was just how it went down at this very typical meal. So I don't know. That's just me. Thought I'd throw that in there, though, so you at least know about it. Samuel, anything on that bit?
1: Yeah. Do we know whether within the calendar of this particular year for the Passover week, um, when Jesus was that this weekend of Jesus Christ, being crucified buried and resurrected whether that fell on the first half of passover week
0: or this or the latter half oh i'm pretty sure it was it was as it was beginning well okay. i shouldn't say pretty sure it was as it was beginning because as we've been talking about they started with the passover meal okay Now, we have the confusion about which night it was, et cetera, et cetera, but that was at the beginning, and it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows.
1: Right. And would that have been the the Passover meal, the Seder, would that have been something that collectively the entire nation would have participated all on the same date, same evening, or was there flexibility within their culture that— I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, like, could, could there have been a potential that, like, in the same way that the the main disciples had a, a Passover Seder with Jesus, and if these two individuals in this story, if they're not directly a, a part of the eleven, they would have but maybe heard about the Passover Seder, and then... This b- breaking of bread, if they had a their own seder oh. at their own private quarters, that's what led to the the connection and the revelation.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be too confident as if I just know everything. However, I feel pretty good that no, that couldn't okay. have been the case. Okay. There was there was some confusion. I don't know if you even if you remember back when we were talking about Passover. All there's so many different ways that people try to make sense of the Gospels, where it really appears as though a few of them are treating it as a Passover meal the night before he's crucified, and then John is not presenting it that way, but that causes other confusion. One of the potential explanations was this rift between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and trying to decide when the new moon was and what day this happens and what day that happens, and that... Maybe they really did do it on a different night, and and most of the nation was doing it the next night, or something like that. So there are those kinds of thoughts. But at this point, we know that it's Sunday. We know it's the day after Sabbath. We know that uh, it's the the what do we call that? First fruits. Mm-hmm. We're starting that, and so no, they they weren't doing a seder. If gotcha. you were going to try to do a makeup. Like, what, what was it? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus probably mm-hmm. did. It's a month later. Okay. Yeah. So anything else? Nope. Okay. Yeah, boy, that's, uh, that's all confusing bits back there. But what are you going to do? That's the text we got. All right, let's go on. So we're going to continue in Luke, but we're going to add some John in here as well. So Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 40. And then we're also looking at John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. I'm going to read a little bit from John first and then read the rest of Luke. So the first part of John 20, 19 says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and I'm just going to kind of cut off there because then it's all repeat stuff, but important little bits in there. But let me read Luke now. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. All right. It's some cool stuff, Samuel. So, We're going to go with John here. He says it's now Sunday evening. Now, I think it's important. We kind of have to take that as, well, it's before sundown, because otherwise they would have had to call it Monday, the second day of the week. So if we take John's uh, description and the story that Luke is telling us about these two guys, well... I mean, these two must have run <laughs> all the way back to Jerusalem to beat the sun going down. And, and, and I mean, just normal, healthy, average adult male type people. I mean, that, that would have taken at least an hour, an hour and a half. And and uh, well, I guess we should say it's not impossible. I mean, they may have stopped in Emmaus early enough and, and they were young, healthy men probably we don't even know that, but, uh, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. So uh, they could have done this, but wow, they would have been high tailing it. You know where that phrase comes from, Samuel? I don't. Is it from deer. a rabbit? Deer. Have you oh, ever okay. seen deer? Yeah, they lift yeah. up that tail. Yep. and they start, They're high tailing it. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) the two, when they arrive, they find the 11, which we know is really only 10. They find the 11 and the others, and they are let in. The doors are locked behind them. Why? For fear of the Jews. And, well, they hear a little bit about uh, Peter's story, and then they tell their own story. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the room. Peace to you. And I mean, hey, for clarity, if we wanted to be explicit, it's the peace of the kingdom to you, because that's like the ultimate peace that everybody's looking for. Right now, Samuel, I got to tell you, I don't know all that resurrected bodies can do. I mean, nobody sent me a list. I, whatever. I don't know. But passing through walls, I'm guessing that's going to be a popular upgrade. You know what I'm saying? That's a good one. Now, here's the thing, though. The text isn't super explicit. But with John's statement that the doors were locked and the disciples' reaction that they were seeing a spirit or ghost, whatever they might be, okay, it's a reasonable inference that Jesus just kind of appeared out of nowhere. Now, maybe that was sort of a you know, like snap your fingers and, oh my gosh, he's just there. It's an instant appearing, an instant disappearing. Or maybe it was something like passing through the doors and walls. I mean, what are you going to do? Argue that one of those is easier than the other? I mean, it's crazy supernatural, right? But however you look at it, something something like that happened. So I don't know about you, Samuel. If you're sitting in the room Bunch of other guys, somebody appears out of nowhere, and you know the doors are locked. You, everybody else in that room is going to be kind of freaked out. Mm-hmm. So, well, and in this case, okay, maybe except Jesus, obviously he's not freaking himself out. And maybe Peter, because Peter's already seen him once, but so there's that. Or maybe the two from Emmaus, maybe that. So maybe not every single person in the room is freaked out, but let's just say most of them are. They're startled. They're frightened. And in their mind, they don't know what else to think. The first thing that pops in their head is that they're seeing a ghost or a spirit. And so Jesus asks, why are you troubled? Why are you doubting? Which, if you're being honest and you put yourself in the situation, that doesn't seem like a very fair question. Are you kidding me? Why am I troubled? Why, what? But it's kind of funny also because you know that Jesus... Now being resurrected, and I mean, I don't even know how to say it, as much closer to God as he can be, or whatever that whatever. He knows exactly what's going on inside them at this point. So we understand that guess what? It isn't really a question, like it's not a real question. It's actually more of a a gentle chiding or something. And, and we know because he addresses their concern next, it's not like Anybody had to tell him so that he could figure it out, but he tells them, "Listen, I'm no spirit; I'm flesh and bone. Look, see the holes in my hands, my feet. Touch me, you'll see." Now, they had heard Peter's story; they'd heard the story of the two that came from Emmaus, and now he shows up supernaturally in their midst. They actually get to feel his. Solid flesh, bone, right? Feel the warmth of his skin, and uh, let's just say all the stuff that he had spoken before about his suffering and resurrection—that you know they're they're kind of witnessing it all come to pass now—and they still struggle to believe, or at best, maybe we could say it, it looks as if they were they were still being moved to belief or something like that. Now, don't be too quick to judge because it's in this that you see the power of preconceived ideas. This whole thing, it was not what they expected. So they are in this moment, they are experiencing this cognitive dissonance, joy, confusion, it, you know, the it doesn't match up with what I thought. This is wrong somehow. It's right somehow. I don't, I don't know what to do. We can easily do the same thing in all sorts of different areas, but especially, and this is where we all need to sort of hear the warning. We do the same thing with our expectations and interpretations of the scripture. On one hand, Samuel, we do this podcast. And, and we'd love it to be this long, enduring help for people to come listen and maybe get a, a, a different sort of perspective on the scriptures that helps them see the picture better. And we wish that after producing all this content, that it was, you know, error free. <laughs> but guess what? We're going to continue living. We're going to continue seeing and reading and learning and understanding. And along the way, we're going to find out, wow, as it turns out, we were being kind of dumb about this point or that point or you know whatever we have to recognize that we do this as humans and leave room some flexibility so that we can actually continue to to see more clearly and learn new things but anyway uh that was a little bit of a soapbox moment uh what about this section sammy what do you got
1: are we going to address the elephant in the room of jesus's crucifixion wound still being present on his resurrected body
0: (laughs) well i'm happy to why don't you begin and then when i figure out what you're talking about well (laughs) i'll join in
1: (laughs) i mean if jesus is the first fruits of the the age to come so to speak his resurrection represents the casting off of sin and death corruption within our physical bodies um, and that seems to imply some kind of healing some kind of restoration that's involved and so i'm just wondering if jesus's example here is an exception because of him being the cornerstone of this age that is coming compared to the majority of people who will get to experience resurrection uh, in a future yeah. reality.
0: Yeah. And the question behind that is, you know, what about the guy who went off to fight in war and he got a, an arm or a leg blown off when he's resurrected? Is he going to be without his arm or leg? I mean, if Jesus still had his scars and wounds, what about that guy? So, yeah, it's a really difficult question. And I think I think you have hit on at least one really important point. And that is, well, okay, we don't know everything there is to know about the resurrected body. I mean, we didn't know that it could just, like, appear and disappear or pass through walls or whatever it can do. Is it possible that Jesus could be displaying these wounds now, but he won't always have them? Or is it possible that he has them because they represent the work that he accomplished? And so it, they they will remain forever as sort of that testimony or something? Uh, Samuel, I have no idea. I mean, what if I live to be 108 years old? When I'm resurrected, am I going to be this shriveled up, old, bent over man that's just like, you know, barely able to get around? Or am I going to be strapping young man chiseled from stone? I mean, (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know how that all works. So, uh, I mean, your question is great. I just don't know how we ever answer it.
1: Yeah. I've heard both sides of the coin, and actually one of the organizations that Paul and I pretty proudly support, First Roots of Zion, they have had articles and podcasts talking about this where they use Paul the Apostle as like a, I don't know, proof text to show that when we are resurrected, we will be first resurrected into the same body that we had as you know corrupted physical beings with sin and death still present and then there's that change that happens and that comes from first corinthians chapter 15 verse 52 where paul says for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed so they're like splitting those two things as kind of like two different events first the dead will be raised. And then we'll be changed. I don't know. So just something yeah. to think, think about. And I can, I'll can i post that article uh, in our okie-dokie notes as well if you want to peruse it at your pleasure.
0: Yeah, yeah. That is, uh, that is an interesting one. And, uh, you know, I, I still, I remember reading that. And I, I still don't know what to think about it. There's a part of me that's like, well, are we talking about the resurrected first versus those who did not die? So the resurrected, you know, they're raised and we who are still alive are changed? Or is it actually talking about, no, the resurrected show up in their sort of like regular old body, which is already miraculous in and of itself. And then it's changed. It's a really good question. So, yeah, that's a neat article. We'll post that and, and let people chew on it. <laughs> I got <Right>? it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Anything else? That's it for now. All right, well, we're going to continue in Luke. This is chapter 24, verses 41 through 43. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate before them. Okay. Now, before I actually get to, you know, some of our notes and stuff, just to point out, some of you may have a translation that says something like and some honeycomb, and some of you may not. It doesn't appear in them all. I just, you know, wanted to point that out that that's one of those kind of questionable texts. It appears in some of the original and not whatever. Uh, So that's a thing. But Samuel, this sentence, while they still disbelieved for joy what the heck does that mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) isn't that weird
1: and that's in Luke that's not even
0: weird in John (laughs) John right right so man I had to I had to really scratch my noggin a bit on this one so first of all let's say this Remember how I talked about they'd seen all these things, they'd heard all the things before, they were witness, witnessing it all come to path, pass. It still seemed like though somehow they were still, there's still some sort of struggle to believe or maybe they were still in the process being moved to belief or something like that. I gotta say, after everything I read about this, trying to figure out what what was this, this sentence actually trying to communicate, I don't think this is, is so much a statement of unbelief i think it's actually a statement that that's more like hey they they were they were actually on the way it's like it's almost like we caught them in that moment in between not quite yet believing and believing right they they were right in between there so we shouldn't look at these guys as if they're some sort of stubborn pathetic losers that's not right they this was a difficult thing for them, but it, it maybe it's more like something that that we could relate to today. We'd say, I can't even believe this is happening right now. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about when I use that phrase, that, that feeling that you have in that moment? And you can think, I don't know, other big moments in your life, uh, that moment when she said yes, or that moment when you found out you're having a baby or fill in the blank with any number of things it's almost like you can't really believe it right there in the midst of your joy. You see what I'm saying? They disbelieved for joy. I don't know. That's all I could really come up with. It's like you're overflowing with joy and at the same time, maybe wondering, still wondering if this is real. You've got to pinch yourself kind of stuff. You're, you're moving from the reality you thought you knew to a new reality, which happens to be, you know, the actual reality. They were, they're, they're simply lost in wonder over this new reality that's confronting them. It's like right in their face. And so I found a couple examples in the scriptures, Samuel. Okay. They're not this exact thing, but I think you can see it's, it's a couple instances of people experiencing a moment like this. So Samuel, if you would, would you read from Acts chapter 12, verses 13 and 14?
1: And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate.
0: So here's this girl, and in her joy... She gets so excited, she can't even believe that it's Peter outside the gate. And she gets so messed up that she doesn't even bother to let him in. She runs off to tell them, hey, guess who's at the gate? So, so it's like that is an image, that, that thing that she's going through. She can't believe it's happening. She's wrapped up in the joy of it, and she's not thinking clearly. You know, that kind of thing. Here's another one. Genesis chapter 45, verse 26.
1: And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his
0: heart became numb, for he did not believe them. So here is, what is it, Jacob, the dad? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. So (laughs) Israel. There you go. So Joseph is still alive. He's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And listen to what it says. His heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Well, think about that, Samuel. If somebody told you something and you just plain old didn't believe them, would your heart go numb? (laughs) He's having this weird moment of, I don't believe it. And yet something inside him was either maybe telling him it could be true or maybe maybe it was just, you know, hope tried to overtake him and he tried to shut it down or whatever. The point is, you can see people having this weird emotion that I'm relating to disbelieving for joy. So, I don't know. You might like those examples. You might not. But let's go on. Now, this next little part, it, it might almost seem silly to us today. But in a way, it's kind of cool. Jesus asks for some food. Feeling a bit peckish, are we? It, why would he do that? Well. They end up giving him some broiled fish and he eats it for them to see. So we wouldn't think of this, but if you were alive in the first century and you were Jewish and you were in Israel, you would have had a particular belief, understanding, mindset about many things in the world. This is just another way that Jesus is confirming that he is not a spirit. He is flesh and bone. See, some of the first century thinking was that, let's say, for example, ghosts or spirits, they don't eat food or they can't eat food. Here was another one. Angels can't eat food or don't eat food. It's only real humans who do. Now, if your mind is really clicking, you're sort of firing on all cylinders here, you might remember back to the story of the angels visiting Abraham. What did they do, Samuel? They had a whole, like, 60 loaves of bread given to them. (laughs) Yeah, they did make a humongous meal, but they ate a meal together, or so it appeared in the text. But what's funny is in the first century, they even had some tradition that said, oh, you know what, though? They were angels. They only appeared to be eating or seemed to be eating, but There was something miraculous going on there. The food was just kind of disappearing. So angels can't eat food. Angels don't eat food. So agree or disagree doesn't matter. Back then, that's what they thought. So for a few in this room, this may have been the final proof that they needed. Jesus ate food. And so he was proving I am flesh and blood. I am a real human. Now, okay, he's a resurrected one. He's got a fancy new body, but he's human. So I don't know. I I, I just think that's amazing. Now, uh, I should mention that there are some manuscripts that have them after, you know, he takes this fish, they actually eat an entire meal together. And okay, so there's, I think, I think it's fair to say the majority of scholarship. Doesn't go with that. They they don't think that that belongs here in the text. But for the ones that do, they actually look at uh, Acts chapter 10 41 and there's just one little part of a sentence. Samuel, why don't you read that? This
1: is concerning about those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead.
0: Yeah, they take that one little snippet and they go, oh, you see that right there? That is related back to this moment right here. So when we have some text that says that they ate an entire meal together, 1041, Acts 1041, you know, it coincides with that. And so there's your proof. We should keep it. Okay. I don't think it's very reliable. The things that I read don't seem very reliable. And I guess we could at least, you know, mark this off as a definite maybe. I don't know. But I just wanted to bring it up so that you know some translation may actually talk about that or have a footnote about it or whatever we're not giving it a lot of credence i don't know that it really matters either way but i'm just saying we're just going with the part where jesus ate a piece of fish that was kind of left over from the meal they had earlier samuel what do you got on this part
1: i I mean i think that there's some deep implications here for followers of the master jesus lay it on us take to heart. Like if Jesus is the first fruits of the age to come, I know that said that I said that phrase in the last section, then what we see in Jesus and in, in his resurrected being is what we have to look forward to if we are blessed and gifted with getting to experience that and and look at what the text is saying our future reality is going to be. We will have flesh and bone body yes it will not be an ethereal floaty spirit it will be a physical restored body Uh, yes here's another thing we will actually do things similar to our current reality now i.e we will eat in the age to come we will share meals with one another so yes that is extremely important because the evangelical church does not preach that they just right. preach that we go to heaven and that's the end of the story but it's <laughs> right. it's, it's not that it's so much more it's so yeah. it it is a a future hope that's made into a physical reality for us
0: yeah i got two things to say about that number 1 If you think that pizza and chocolate are the greatest foods ever invented on the earth right here now today, wait till you have them in your (laughs) new body. Huh? That's what I'm saying. And then the other thing is, yeah, not only what you're talking about, but when you look back to the beginning of the story and understand that all of the rest of the story is us returning there, we will also work. Mm. It won't be painful toil and suffering. It will be fulfilling we will have stuff to do we are going to continue to live on the earth okay technically a new one but it's such a cool picture we were created to live in creation and we're going to do that eternally god comes to dwell with man not the other way around Mm. it's amazing so cool so sorry what else you got
1: I guess I should rethink my retirement plans if I'm going to be working
0: in the age to come. That's right. (laughs) Don't even bother. Why retire now when you're going to be working for eternity? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Seriously, anything else? (laughs) Nope. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, We're going to look to, oh, we're moving to John now. Oh, boy. This this is John (laughs) chapter 20. Verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Oh, Samuel, this is going to be a toughie. You ready?
1: (laughs) Classic okie-dokie, most having the toughest stuff at the end.
0: Yeah, why not? All right, so uh, let's start at the top. Jesus says it again, peace be with you. And again, it's that peace of the kingdom. It's It's completeness, wholeness, well-being, harmony, security, tranquility. I don't know any other words. Uh, This is for them to have and experience even now. It's like, like something to get them through the rest of their lives, if you will. And it's also something they will carry with them and pour out on those they interact with. And maybe even something they can pass on. To others, in in at least some sense. So so peace be with you. Now, we know that Jesus was sent on a mission by God, that is, uh, the Father, God the Father, and Jesus completed his mission successfully. But now he's saying, in the same way, Jesus is going to be sending his disciples on a mission. And this little section of Scripture. I, I kind of noticed how it sounded a little bit like the Great Commission, so I decided we should call this the only slightly less Great Commission. So you know, so you can see it's the it's good, close.
1: The Good Commission versus yeah. the Great Commission.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. So he wants to send his disciples on a mission. Uh, again, some think that this should actually be a parallel sequence or section or whatever with Matthew twenty-eight, the the actual Great Commission. Others actually try to line this little bit up with Pentecost, you know, like the outpouring of the Spirit that we see there. It's it's all a little bit troublesome just from the standpoint of you know what lines up where because this is this is kind of an amazing and special moment, but but where does it go, right? It, it, it's kind of weird. So as part of this, Jesus breathes on them and and says to them. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Samuel, I want you to think back. Jesus, he goes to John in the Jordan. He gets baptized. And what happens? Uh, The Spirit descends on him. Yeah. Jesus receives the Spirit and he starts his mission. They're about to start a mission and they are given the Spirit. Now, here's the thing, though. Samuel, is this text, should we read it? Is it suggesting that the only way to receive the spirit is by someone who already has it, you know, like blowing on you or something to impart it?
1: That sounds like uh, running the risk of experiencing some bad
0: halitosis. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, but, but, but it's not. It's not trying to limit it. Like like this is the way everybody's going to do it. This is just one example and and also, I have to say, I think this is some super cool imagery that points back to Genesis when God created Adam. So Samuel, why don't you read that a little bit from genesis two seven:
1: Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature.:
0: yeah, now, in that case. God was just making a living creature like the original model, same kind of thing we are. This, however, what we see Jesus doing, this is very interesting because this is now the resurrected king of the kingdom doing this. This is about new creation and new life. And we might say it's not about a spirit, where we might talk in the language that says that we all have a spirit, this is about the spirit. Jesus is giving them the same spirit that he received after his baptism. So it's important to note that this should be considered different from, or or, or maybe it's something more than That general outpouring that we all receive. And here's what I mean. They were the witnesses. They were the apostles, the ones on the mission, the first mission. I understand that we have a mission as well, but this was different. They needed something more so that the accompanying signs and whatever else was going to go along with them, that was going to provide God's additional testimony and endorsement along with their own testimony. So I'm not saying it's a different spirit. I'm saying it's the same spirit. I'm simply saying, I think that it's reasonable to look at this and say, hey, if the spirit can be measured, and it seems it can because Jesus got the fullness, the full measure, I think that they received, these original guys, I think they received a measure that was different than what we all received. The general believing us, I, I, I can't put a number on it. I can't quantify it in some way, but I, I think they they were given something more, just as part of the testimony and endorsement. So that's an important point. The second thing is, and this oh Samuel, this gets hard. This part about if you forgive, they're forgive. If you withhold, they're withheld. Whatever. I have to make this statement because it's important for us to understand what's being said here. Or at the very least, let's understand what's not being said here. So, Samuel, who alone
1: forgives sin? At least on an internal level perspective, only God
0: does. God is the only one who actually forgives sin. Now, Jesus is not. Here, right in this little section of scripture, giving the, uh, the disciples, and in this case, remember it's 10 of them plus some others, Jesus is not giving them God level authority kind of stuff. I mean, just just think about that for a second. Can you even imagine that kind of power in the hands of man, mankind, any man, anywhere? Even with the Holy Spirit, can you imagine that? I, the, the answer has to be no. We must see this as it's a part of their mission in a way that is similar to Jesus's mission. And if if you read it, what you see, the Spirit is given for a very specific purpose here. The Spirit is given for something to do, something related. To forgiveness, being forgiven or not. And so I I think we need to look at this as something that is more declarative in nature. And that is to say, because they have the Spirit, because they have this intimate knowledge through the Holy Spirit, they can declare the truth of the matter with authority. Here's another thing, Samuel, what must a human do to be forgiven? Uh,
1: there has to be repentance and true, genuine
0: change in the person's life. Yeah, yeah. We would use the word believe, but believing includes, I mean, if you really believe it, then you must repent and you must live faithfully and loyally for, to him, for him. So forgiveness is still dependent on that. That also hasn't changed. So they're not stepping into the place of God to do whatever they may will. What we see here is that they are in unity with God via the Spirit, because of the Spirit, through the Spirit, and they are able to declare His will and even as it relates to another's state of forgiveness. Now, this is a real difficulty for me because I know that we want so much. And when I say we, I mean people like you and I, Samuel, we want so much to go, nope, the text says this. We've got to give it its due. And every once in a while, we see something like this, and it's like, man, that, that just goes against everything else we know. In fact, if you read through all the stories and everything, we never really see any picture of the disciples acting as if they had this new power, if you want to call it that. They continued to declare forgiveness for repentance and faithful loyalty to God. So, uh, and, and in a similar way, I guess we should say this out loud. We continue to offer this as a general message today. Uh, a modern phrase we might hear would go something along the lines of, hey, accept Jesus and your sins are forgiven. Uh, and, or, you know, any number of other ways that you might hear it said. But, but that's the message that's coming out. So I know that probably feels a little weird, but I, I, there are just certain things that, that have to remain as constants. God alone forgives sin. S- forgiveness is dependent on repentance, faithful loyalty. Uh, God is not turning things over for man to do whatever he wants, right? It, all of that stuff. So, this is my way of trying to express what I think that the text is actually communicating here, what Jesus was saying to them. And for what it's worth, a lot of people are going to look at this and they try to associate this with the binding and loosing that we saw in Matthew 18, 18. And I mean, you know, there's kind of something to this. Uh, In Matthew 18, 18, it was kind of a legal thing. If you guys declare something as binding, well, God's got your back. He's going to agree with you. It's, it's, it's and, and well on the other side. If you decide that something is loosed, it's allowed. Then then God's got your back on that too. He's going to agree with you. And, and the point of that is simply to say they were they were taking on a new role as kind of like a new Sanhedrin, if you will. And so here, if you determine something to be sin and it is not repented of, they will be unforgiven, and vice versa. That kind of thing. So. I mean, there's some merit in looking at it, this this sort of association with or or parallel symmetry, something with the binding and loosing. I don't see that it's like contradictory or in conflict or anything that was stated above, but it's important to note that forgiveness and binding and loosing, those are two very different things. You know, the, I, I see how the ideas are similar or parallel in a way. But don't confuse the two ideas. that's important to me as well. But anyway, I don't know. I laid a tough one on everybody Samuel what do you What do you think about all that?
1: Yeah, that's a a lot of stuff for us to ponder, wrestle with. but uh yeah, I mean the the concepts that you're talking about here with the the unique setting and situation that the eleven, the apostles are in right now being the first-hand witnesses of this reality changing altering event it, it makes sense for them to have something different than us who are 20 centuries removed from that
0: <laughs> yeah that sounds like a long time when you say it that way <laughs> 20 centuries <laughs> wow anything else um i mean i
1: just i love that genesis callback i mean we've we talked about it all the way in gospels number one with like asking that question how can you have an infinite god dwelling in a finite reality and we had talked about that the wisdom the memra uh, that agent of god that self-limits yeah, himself in order to dwell within a finite realm and that is that is the aspect of god that is present hovering over the waters in genesis 1 that does the creating and we yeah we, we said that 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 same agent became tabernacled among, among us took on flesh and so if we if we say that that same god nature of God that's interacting within the finite realm breathed life into man in Genesis 2 then oh my gosh like of course it connects here with Jesus because Jesus is that creator he is that agent of God in human form and he's doing it here in another sense that's just yeah I just love that
0: yeah it's a cool picture huh
1: mm-hmm well last chance I'm, I got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away.
0: <laughs> All right, I think you're gambling with the audience's favor at this point, but let's <laughs> let's cut it and go. <laughs>
1: Hokey pokey. Oh! Thank you for listening to the Okidokimos podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode, and be sure to leave us a five star rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.